0: Today I'm joined by Bo Weingard. He is an exiled academic. He has a, a PhD in social psychology from Florida State, where he studied under Roy Baumeister. Um, then he was a professor at a small college in the Midwest, and now, after being a professor at a small college in the Midwest, he is uh, an independent scholar. Welcome, welcome, Bo.
1: Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: So, uh, so you've been canceled. You've been publicly, uh, publicly ousted from from polite society. Uh, how what is life like after cancellation? Is there life after cancellation?
1: <laughs> there is. There is. Um, it's not as lucrative as having a job, though, unfortunately. But I mean, in in terms of my everyday life, it's it's close to the same other than that i don't teach i mean i just do research i still learn about human variation and other things that i'm interested in politics etc um try to make money here and there when i can
0: yeah so it's um yeah it's 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 definitely a a change of pace i mean are you do you feel like you you have a bit more uh, I, i guess you have more freedom obviously at this point but do you see the, the 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 definite upside of you know just being detached from the institutions and maybe you know not not giving a fuck, I guess that's my Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean there is that's an advantage. So it's nice not to have to worry about any potential problems with an employer, although you still have to worry about if you ever needed to get a job in the future you know, if I can't get enough money to scrape by as an independent scholar or whatever. Um, so I have to censor myself ever so slightly. I don't censor much as people who follow me would reckon, but just a little bit. But yeah, it's nice not to have to worry about that. Um, but I do miss teaching students. That's that's like the one thing that I miss quite a bit.
0: Um, and as an independent scholar, I wonder like how... How would you mon monetize that? I guess you know if you're an academic, you get paid through the university, and that's it. But um, you know, the, do you get paid for for research? Or I don't know. This is a bit technical, but it seems it seems interesting. No,
1: it's uh, so I get a little bit. I mean, a generous amount, I would say, not enough to live off of, but a generous amount from Patreon. So I'm thankful to people who donate to me there, and then. You just scrap for money from people who you know. There, sometimes you can find a source here or there who's willing to give a little bit of money for research, and then you write pieces and get you know you try to make money. Publish, you know, piece you can get up. I don't know three four hundred dollars at places nowadays um for publishing so that's what i do mostly it's patreon that i'm dependent on now because uh, and you know some generous donations behind the scenes because i'm working on scholarship so i i haven't been writing a lot of articles i've been concentrating on um, outlining a couple book ideas and working on that so just doing a lot of studying and reading
0: yeah That's, that's, that's excellent. Um, and I, it it, is interesting to me, like just kind of being on, on Twitter, I've been getting all sorts of, you know, job offers from people for, for stuff that it's not necessarily tied into, into what I do for a living. Um, but there is also kind of like that idea that, you know, once you're out there, once, you know, you're known, you're known quantity, you're known for someone who's not bullshitting, that's already kind of a job quality in itself. Like, I don't think you're worried about starving uh, in the sense that, you know, you're never going to get a job. You might not get the job that you you'd want.
1: Yeah, I mean, if I had to take care of kids or something, I'd be I would be concerned, but I don't. So so you're right. I'm not. And I think I do think um I'm bad at most things in life, but I'm good at a couple of things like I'm good at thinking I'm good at writing and I think those and I don't I I try to be intellectually honest and I think those are qualities that are marketable or that are desirable somewhere and people know that so yeah you'll get offers here and there I mean. Problem is the thing that I'm the most interested in, namely human population variation. There's not a lot of demand for that (laughs) for, for obvious reasons, but, um, but yeah, you, you can get some here or there. You can probably make, you know, like I figure if I can make somewhere between 20 and 50,000 a year, I, I, you know, I can survive off of that. And I'm, I'm happy doing that by the way, is that Plato in the background? Is that a Plato statue?
0: No, this is this is Moses. Um, it was,
1: oh, oh really okay. Yeah, he's got
0: the plates and everything. He's really <laughs> I see. I see that was, That's
1: awesome. All right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and I've, I've got all sorts of you know random knickknacks. In this house. Yeah, <laughs> I, is... I
1: collect these statues. I had I used to I have like Plato and Aristotle and Thomas Jefferson etc. cetera. I was, I was just curious.
0: Yeah, my, mine are a bit more uh, Christian themed oh, okay. <laughs> in this room. Saying, yeah, no, not necessarily. I mean, it's uh it's uh, i I'm, I'm kind of in uh, in a duplex, and now I've I've kind of become very trad. I've moved back to my my hometown, and we have this kind of two two sided house, and and my mother is my neighbor, so oh, really? all okay. sorts of overflow from from my I mom's see. house <laughs> is in here. <laughs> so it's uh it's it's good. I mean, I like it. Why not? I'm I'm at that phase in my life where like a statue of Moses kind of feels yeah. Like, yeah,
1: I like it. Interesting. yeah
0: (laughs) why not um yeah i wanted to to ask you because you mentioned western civilization in your twitter bio it is one thing that you're you're kind of it's a core orientation for you Um, it is yeah and you know your fondness for western civilization is known um and i'm curious what what you think is unique about western civilization what 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 makes your heart flutter when you think about western civilization
1: (laughs) (laughs) um yeah, so, I mean, people, uh, when people are being contentious, they'll say, you know, there's no such thing as Western civilization, or define it. And it's, you know, it's one of those concepts that's very complicated, so it's it's difficult to define it. And I do think the, the sort of proverbial, you know it when you see it thing, I, people like to make fun of that, but I think that's actually a philosophically sound position. But I think you can... Um, isolate certain features of it so for example markets um freedom of speech freedom of inquiry respect for the individual rule of law etc these are all features of western civilization they aren't necessarily unique to western civilization but i think the whole package together Western civilization does it better than any other civilization has, and I like those features of civilization. Now, I I think it's also important to note that what civilization a person is attracted to depends to some degree on the traits of the person. So somebody who's much more, say, conformist and uh, less interested in individual autonomy, etc., might be attracted to a slightly different civilization. I think there's nothing wrong with that at all. Just personally, I find Western civilization, uh, respect for the individual, et cetera, appealing. And I think it's. I also I think it's. It's just a wonderful human achievement, and it is perplexing and irritating to me that, especially young college kids, for example, but more and more the elite and sort of college professors constantly assail it and criticize it for being um, I don't know white supremacist or imperialist or colonialist whatever and spend a lot of time just writing lists of the flaws of Western civilization now of course there are flaws or uh, you know historically there have been flaws of many things all civilizations have, uh, perpetrated horrendous crimes, right? <laughs> right. I think like the unique thing about Western civilization is sort of self-reflectiveness about that, uh, a kind of guilt, which may be at this point even pathological. But part, part of the reason I say Western civilization is pretty cool, which I think is my quote, now I change it every once in a while, is precisely because of the sort of faddish hostility toward Western civilization in Western civilization, which I think is not only is it just sort of silly, but it's actually ruinous because it creates distrust and loathing of one of the m- most amazing human achievements.
0: Yeah, yeah, this this seems to be kind of the the zeitgeist now to to, to poke fun and, and kind of uh, you know try to try to undermine Western civilization, which in a way. In some of your writing, and as far as I've heard you speak, you're not necessarily poking fun at it, or but you you oh, you do offer a critical lens as well, because you've you know you've been talking about you know the 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 dangers of a certain you know brand of liberalism, you know the about the guardrails falling off, and uh, do you think kind of having this baked-in criticism of Western civilization is, is protective of it? Or is it undermining? Because I mean, I've I've been accused of of trying to undermine the project by you know you know offering some you know more post liberal critiques of of, uh, of some things. So yeah, I'm curious, kind of how do you how do you um make peace uh, with that in yourself, Bo? <laughs> it's it's a
1: good question because there may be so so it, to be clear about any criticism of say Western civilization, I don't think a critical orientation is bad right so like i think uh, one should so, so think of a sports team for example one should be critical of one sports team because it helps the you know maybe like if you're in the management or something it helps you make better moves realize what you're doing wrong we should do something else i think that's good and healthy what's not healthy and what's perhaps pathological is actually creating hatred of the civilization, right? And I think there is a big difference between the two. So being critical of something that you love and revere and respect is very different from being critical of something that you're also teaching people more or less to abhor, right? Um, yeah, the as far as the the sort of criticism of, of liberalism or the, this kind of post-liberalism or whatever that's a really complicated thing uh i mean i've i've tried to think of, i've been thinking these things through for a long time uh, i'm sure you have as well i don't have any great conclusions i do think i think there are some serious challenges with maybe you take something that's probably in most ways, positive, namely, say, respect for individualism and individual autonomy, perhaps that can go too far. And and perhaps that's what we're seeing and, and that may become malignant. I'm not sure about that. I think maybe with the addition also of, say, social media and other technologies that seem to subtract from social capital and take people away from their communities, coupled with an obsession with individualism that's like one of my major concerns now i should say these are such complicated issues as you know that again i don't have any strong opinions i have interesting ideas and i I would like to debate these things and do more research about it to the extent that we can but i think that kind of criticism is perfectly healthy of course and in fact I have lots of friends who are progressives who criticize the shit out of Western civilization, but they do it. These are progressives who still love Western civilization, right? So they do it from that perspective. And I think that that's completely healthy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think you can, you know, you can respect Western civilization, you know, love it even, but also, you know, be cautious enough to try to model potential outcomes of the you know, either the rails or the direction that we're on uh, at the moment. I feel like your, your perspective is really good because you've, you know, being pre-canceled, you can talk about things that are going on um, from from the perspective of, like, um, um, you know, in, inequality um, and, you know, the, fa- the fact that it, it, it tends to exacerbate under a, a liberal regime while also not imposing costs on the people who are ending up winning uh except for I don't know, maybe additional tax income but that's a very that's a very weird it's not no bless oblige it's it's a very distant type of cost so it's um i've i've heard you speak about this and i, I thought that was really uh interesting and the idea that you know we you know un- under when when we enshrined the idea of equality it was still kind of in the christian con- context it was you know equality under god uh, there was kind of this Christian dignity baked into it, uh, and uh, you know, it was it was very much in the context of negative rights, where you know, you're you have the right to be left alone. But at the moment, it's uh, it's kind of flipped around a little bit, where you know you have this iron hierarchy that's getting much more hierarchical by with every iteration, and you know, the people who are competent in this hierarchy almost have an elevator to the top, and they they're not looking back, they're not looking down. Uh, and a lot of people are getting left behind. So uh, to me, I feel like that's that's why I'm worried. I feel like these trends are, you know, they're they're continuing, not necessarily sure if anyone has the um, the wherewithal or the honesty to confront them head on to say, OK, you know, we we have this, you know, iron cognitive uh, stratification that's building. Um, mm-hmm. What are we going to do about it?
1: Well, yeah, so that's. It's one of my greater concerns as well, is the the sort of cognitive stratification. I mean, one problem is that many among the elite pretend that cognitive ability doesn't really vary across individuals and certainly not across population. And that makes it really hard to address a problem that's premised on variation in cognitive ability (laughs) and the consequences of that variation. Um, so, but but yes, it creates more, more than monetary inequality. It creates cultural inequality, differences in the sort of culture that you consume, the culture that you promote and signal to other people, even the moral values that you uh, absorb and then promote. And I think cultural inequality is actually even more destructive and divisive than economic inequality, at least in a post-affluent civilization, right? I mean, that's not to say there aren't some people quite literally struggling for their next meal, but most people aren't in that position. What strikes people viscerally now is that feeling of being condescended to, the feeling that there are these haughty elites who, not only do they not participate in, with the lower classes, but they disdain them. They hate everything about them. They think that their opinions are bigoted and parochial, etc. And I mean, I think everybody who went to high school should be able to understand this. Like, it, when you were a freshman in high school, you, you know, you can kind of remember viscerally the feeling of just being on the bottom of the hierarchy, not necessarily economically, but culturally. You were just you know, the seniors would, if they saw you walking, maybe they'd throw you in a trash can or whatever. You <laughs> know, just like that's kind of how things went. And I think the way you could cope with it in high school is I'm gonna be a senior one day. So even though it was <laughs> it was like a repugnant feeling, there was sort of a recompense. Well, I'll be in that position one day. Unfortunately, with I I I can only speak for the United States. In the United States, if you're in West Virginia and you're a Trump voter, you're a white male, let's say probably is the particular demographic profile, you don't have that feeling anymore. There's no oh well, i'll I'll be there someday or whatever. It's just your culture is loathed. And there really is i I, I hate to say this, and i've I've been reluctant to say this, but there is a kind of faddish anti-white racism that's becoming popular among elites. it's It's this kind of, you know, this can be, discriminate to end discrimination (laughs) attitude and this abolish whiteness. Now, I know that what the clever people will say is, well, abolish whiteness is not actually about white race. It's about this culturally created white idea. But I call shenanigans on that. I think that's just bullshit. And we all know what people would say if I said abolish blackness. And I was like, yeah, but it's not the race. It's these behaviors and stuff. Nobody would take that seriously. They would, I would get canceled again <laughs> or somehow and it would be called what it is, namely racist. So, so I think that's also a problem that contributes to this cultural inequality because white elites basically self-flagellate as a way to say, I'm a member of the elite. I'm so good. I recognize my own sin and you guys don't. And that makes you like despicable and just these lowly people.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it is it it really is an an interesting way to I feel even just atone for the fact that you're part of this, of uh, you know cultural financial and you know cognitive elite even if they right. don't necessarily want to admit to that, um because you know socio status tracks pretty well with with you know g g loaded tests and yes it and does all certainly yeah right so, so it's it, it, it is interesting. The, the way they um, they take this one facet about themselves, which is probably the least relevant, the fact that they have white skin um, and then
1: right. right
0: and then they turn that into some form of kind of i know gnostic religion where they just self flagellate and say okay this 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 little thing, not the fact that you know I come from a long line of you know doctors and lawyers, not the fact that I was born with you know co- like high cognitive potential." not the fact that we had money or anything class or anything it's it's, it's just this little bitty thing no you
1: know that's that's a really good point because it's undoubtedly the case that if you were to you know say you were in the sort of rawlsian position and you were you were just choosing what traits would i want in this world i guess that's not exactly the rawlsian position but if you were sort of you were pulled back from civilization and somebody said you can pick your traits what do you want to pick you would pick cognitive ability right would be the trait that you would say i want to max that fucker out right i want that as high as it goes you wouldn't care i don't think you would pick skin color would would be very late in the process of choosing like i have very little doubt that an african-american with 150 iq is in a much better position in the world than a white person with a 100 IQ, right? In terms of like what you would predict for all, what we would all agree are relevant and desired outcomes. But you're right, instead of focusing on those things, which we should, because we should, I mean, I'm not saying we should um We shouldn't hold people with high cognitive ability down, but we need to be honest about what's happening and try to figure out like the the most sort of fair way of arranging things so that people who are just average in intelligence, which there's nothing wrong with that, can also live a meaningful life. Instead of doing that and focusing on that, you're right. These people are obsessing about skin color, which has very little to do with any of this. And in fact, I'm You know, I'm not sure about this, but I'd be willing to defend the assertion that there is no systemic racism. And again, I'll only speak for the United States In the United States. And I think most of the disparities that people would point to as evidence of systemic racism have other causes. Now, again, I mean, maybe that's not true. If it isn't true, what is true is that race is not the primary driver of these inequalities anymore. It's clearly other traits, cognitive ability, self-control, conscientiousness, etc.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it is interesting to me that, you know, both both the left and the right are blind to these dynamics. Uh, because if you if you yeah, because the left is gonna say, okay, it's racism, but the right is gonna say, oh it's you know it's fatherlessness or it's <laughs> yes. culture yes. Um, I
1: hate that <laughs> it drives me crazy because It's, I mean, part of me think, I'm not sure sometimes how sincere that people are. I don't know if they're saying fatherlessness because they can just throw that out there and they don't have to talk about more uncomfortable possibilities or if they really believe it. I'm not sure. So let's just assume most of them really believe it. The evidence against that position is remarkable copious i mean that's not to say i mean i do think if you look at i haven't looked into the literature for a little bit but i I did look into it you know a couple years back and i've talked to people who work with the literature there seems to be a small effect of fatherlessness after controlling for genes which is what you have to do of course you have to control for genes here there may be a small effect there it may have small effects on certain outcomes But the effects are not large. And, you know, there was a, a, I guess you would call it an infamous book written a while back now called The Nurture Assumption um, by, why can I not think of her name?
0: Judith Rich Harris.
1: Rich Harris. Thank you. Yeah. Judith Rich Harris. It's a wonderful book, right? And it basically makes the argument that parenting doesn't matter in the way that we think it does, right? So it's important. I think people will say parenting doesn't matter. I don't like to put it that way, because that would be like saying getting punched in the face doesn't matter because it doesn't have long term consequences. Well, yeah, but it hurts in the moment. So like having bad parents sucks at the time, even if it doesn't cause lasting differences in traits, let's say. So it's not that parenting doesn't matter. It's that parenting doesn't have large effects on important psychological traits and this has been known in the literature for a long time the behavioral genetics literature is full of people making this point over and over now there's a little debate about well how much does it matter is, is it 10% of you know variation 15 whatever it doesn't matter the way conservatives act as though it does and it's really frustrating because the same people who will make fun of progressives for sort of ignoring reality are doing it when they do the, it's all about incentives and parents, right? (laughs) But those are like the two things like you can incentivize somebody with a hundred IQ, all you want. They're not going to be a rock star lawyer. It's just not going to happen. And I, I think it would be better if we were honest about this. The problem is, you know, what would happen to a politician who said, Hey, you know what? genes really matter and so does intelligence, <laughs> that person wouldn't go very far. So you can't turn to politicians or even successful political ideologies for the truth, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, yeah, I feel like, um, you know, now these this concepts of, you know, left liberalism and right liberalism are kind of cropping up and the idea that, you know, right liberalism is, um, essentially what libertarianism plus this, this concept of, you know, personal responsibility with personal responsibility, just, you know, you take your bootstraps and you, you, you go on your merry way. Um, and I feel like this is a, the big blind spot of, of the right, but I also feel like people are are, are starting to, to, to see through it. I feel like a lot of discourse is, is, is looking through it and is maybe trying to add more layers to the conversation than this one perspective of the individual who's just like being super rational and has personal responsibility and i don't know it's just it's just you know kicking ass and taking names on his way through the world and that you know john, john waning it through life <laughs> exactly <laughs> right exactly so um, yeah
1: there you, you, i think you're right but let's look, like if you look at the most famous at least public figures sort of associated with like a post liberalism let's say like sohab amari and um, patrick denine and um, i don't know you you can name your favorite post liberal if you will
0: yeah john mm-hmm. gray
1: see, i'm not I'm not as familiar with John Gray. So I'll set him aside, and this criticism does not necessarily apply to him. But I like um Amari and Deneen. I disagree with them in places, whatever, but i I like some of what they're attempting to do. However, I think they both ignore these important topics of cognitive ability, perhaps human variation, um, certainly individual variation. I haven't seen a lot on that. And also, and it sounds as though you're probably Christian, so I, I, I totally respect that, but a lot of this there's a lot of religious influence in this which we can talk about but that's that's like complicated i'm personally not religious although i respect i I think christianity is obviously very important in western history just as a factual matter and i'm open to discussion about how important religious is religion is for creating uh you know human support and communities and can you actually replace religion and is it can you think of it from my view, as an as a non believer, as like an important cultural system, mythical system that you can still get a lot from. I I have this very tortured relationship with religion.
0: I have the same um,
1: relationship with okay. religion, so it's, it's all good. <laughs> okay, so but but I do think because both Amari and denine for example, are very religious and they're coming at it from that perspective. They're sort of ideology has a limited appeal it, it, it's sort of limited by that and i i would like to see a much more um, i guess I, I hate to use the term like this but i guess scientifically realist post-liberalism and even there I, I mean i do think it's important to this is my view you can see what you think about this i i think liberalism small L liberalism, of course, works well in a homogenous Anglo society, right? So it's the case that when you have a homogenous society, lots of things come along with that, right? You get higher social trust, you have people who share traits a little bit more, uh, maybe they feel a closer connection with each other. I'm not saying that's good or bad. We can argue that's a separate discussion, the normative one, but that's just a fact. There's a lot of literature on this or meta-analyses on this, that ethnic diversity, if nothing else, it, it does lower social trust. And I think when you get lower social trust and you get more ethnic diversity, it, you end up getting in these sort of um, not, these zero-sum competitions with, with ethnic groups. They feel as though they're fighting against each other. And that tends to undermine certain features of liberalism that worked when you shared background values, because liberalism, you know, the phrase like disciplined order or disciplined liberty, that's really important that liberty works when you have this background of shared assumptions that you don't even question. Like, of course, you shouldn't just punch somebody on the street, or of course, you you should trust like the criminal justice system, more or less, I mean again, not saying you defer to it in all cases, but you trust it and you just have these certain assumptions. when those assumptions start to disappear and people no longer share those assumptions, liberalism starts to break apart. that's my view now, maybe some of these technologies also above and beyond the sort of diversity element uh, create some tension like social media and i don't know if you're like me like i I see you no know, I was just talking to somebody about tiktok and like if you're a woman you just get on there and you can shake your ass around if you're 17 and you can get 2 million views for that and on the one hand it's like okay totally understand why a 17 year old would do that on the other hand i'm not sure that that's healthy (laughs) so maybe that's also a challenge to liberalism but i see the fundamental challenge is sort of increasing diversity and it's the thing people don't like to talk about they don't like to talk about because we have this um this thoughtless uh saying this catechism if you will that diversity is great it's our strength mean, really, people say it over and over and over Generally speaking, if something's great, you don't have to repeat it over and over like people don't walk around being like, "Dude, like beer's awesome," or like <laughs> sex is our strength, sense Suspicious. is great every, you know. <laughs> so that's my view is liberalism, I think to be fair to liberalism, we should recognize that liberalism birthed the greatest countries in the history of the planet like quite literally england the united states canada new zealand australia i think a lot of people again not all people because if you have different traits maybe japan looks good to you or maybe even china i don't know but a lot of people would say look like i would rather live in one of those countries than anywhere else so i think we should give liberalism a lot of credit for that you know, before we go into the, okay, here are some serious challenges to it.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, I think, I think you can definitely do that while also understanding like what you said, you know, the fact that um, it worked amazingly well under certain conditions within Mm -hmm. certain populations, under certain religious regimes as well. Yes.
1: Yeah, that's true too. Yes.
0: If you look at, at liberalism at the moment and you look at what, what are its, you know, Every culture has moral foundations. You know, you mm-hmm. can tell me liberalism is neutral, but actually, like it's you said, diversity, ugly. that's a moral foundation, you know, tolerance, mm-hmm. personal autonomy, all of these things are moral foundations of, of mm-hmm. this regime. Um, and the problem is that, you know, these are essentially Christian foundations. They're, you know, ideas that were birthed within the framework of Christianity. Now mm-hmm. we're saying they're not. Now we're just saying that they're common sense and that they're true and we we're not really seeing it as a religion anymore. We're not really seeing it as that. We're just seeing it as okay. These are inalienable truths. This is this is what we stand for and we're going to go to the to the end of the earth for these principles. And in a way what you see now with wokeness as well is people realize that there's there's power to be gained by pushing these principles to their maximum like you know personal autonomy. That's you know mm-hmm. what's what's the end point of personal autonomy? Well, transgenderism right. is pretty close to that, you know, like you Yes. Know, Ripping yourself apart because you're so autonomous is yeah
1: exactly true. Like like sort of like recreating yourself as any identity you choose to be is sort of the end of that. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, with the with, you know, equality. I mean, equality under God is one thing, you know, human dignity, all the stuff. But equality, perfect equality of outcome. That's already a religious dimension. You know, it doesn't make sense you know, and if we were it's to...
1: Uh, yeah, exactly, right.
0: Yeah, If we were reasonable about it, if we were to say, okay, we're reasonable, we use reason because we're enlightenment people, you would know that diversity is not our strength. You know, if you look, read Putnam, it's not.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, Putnam was the... And, and it's interesting because he sat on those results for multiple years because... He was such I mean, a I limp. Think, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think he was both sort of disgusted by them, but also recognize that other people wouldn't like that they're they're uh, just for people who are thinking well people have criticized putnam there's a a review by a meta-analysis by dennison i forget the other author but they, they do a meta-analysis of the literature on ethnic diversity and trust and they find indeed it, it decreases every kind of trust you can name like generalized trust community trust trust of individuals etc cetera, etc cetera. it does decrease trust it, it you know it's just that's a fact, and it, if, if people are not willing to say, look, like, it, so I'm open to diversity is good as long as they're willing to say, there, look, there are trade-offs, there are costs to it, and let's have an honest conversation about it. Personally, my view is that diversity is a very, it's a great challenge. I, I mean, I <laughs> think it's hard to look at the world and think, you know what actually diversity is awesome. I would recommend that to anybody because it's a it's a huge challenge. Now again, there are some benefits to it of course. I mean, you get to interact with different people, you get different the restaurants. Kinds of- exactly, you get good <laughs> restaurants, but this is the thing that that irritates me, which is that elites tend to get the best of diversity. So they're like, "Cool, I get to go to these fancy restaurants and then I get to go back to my gated community." where it's 95% white, you know, two, 2% two Asian, 3% black or whatever. It's pretty homogenous and everybody in there is super smart and they're very self-controlled and there's no crime and they send their kids to a private school that's, you know, 92% white or whatever. So they're diligently avoiding the consequences of diversity while taking advantage of the, the features that are good. And then, that's kind of annoying, and I, I've noticed this um, have, having known lots of professors, a lot of these professors who do research um, on you know biases and racism, et etc, look at where they live. Do they live in certain areas in cities? No, they live in gated communities well away from all of the problems of diversity. So yeah, that that bothers me. It, What really bothers me, though, is just that we can't talk about it, just the the pervasive dishonesty about these topics. Now, the point that you made, and I, I guess I've made that other people, of course, have made this, but this point about equality as this sort of you, know, you have this Christian concept of equality, which I should say Nietzsche would hate, but we're not Nietzscheans. <laughs> uh, this sort of Christian concept of equal dignity, which I think is one of the great achievements of humans. I mean, just this idea that you know, human each human life is somehow unique and valuable. That's a that's a great recogn- you know, a, a great moral. I think the you know transfiguring that into this uh we have to have equal outcomes of groups or whatever and if we don't that's somehow evidence of of some sin of our civilization that is a serious distortion a a serious i mean because it's it's Making this more metaphysical and ethical claim, and it's turning it into an empirical claim about you know resource accumulation or whatever, and that's a huge mistake. And also, I, I just the the this assumption, and Kendi says this quite explicitly: this assumption that if there's a disparity it has to be discrimination that is causing it right this is a fashionable view now it's totally bogus i mean it's just it's reprehensibly wrong right it's just obviously incorrect yet it pervades our elite media academia etc i mean it's yeah. it's
0: but it's because it it does benefit them, you know. It's it's the the thing because if if we were to to really take uh you know the causes of of these discrepancies seriously,
1: mm-hmm. then
0: there would have to come back into the question of, of you know a noblesse oblige for the people who are actually the winners of these of, of these hierarchies because at the moment they're just you know maybe they send a the check to to you know the democratic socialists of America or whatever, you know <laughs> they they do some some. Uh-huh self-flagellation put out a BLM sign but it's very low right, cost right, very right. low cost um and if we were to realize that okay you know a certain cognitive stratification or a certain stratification in what it means to be a participant in the market you know either to to make money or to gain status in these in in, in the current system uh is going to be with us always if we accept that then mm-hmm. we need to look at okay what 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 obligations come from being good at this game because you're not you're not really. I mean, if, if I have high verbal IQ, it's not like I, I did something to to earn it, you know. Uh, yeah. But, now- well that,
1: but let me push. Well, not push back necessarily, but that that's an interesting thought and a, an interesting and difficult topic, which is how much um, pride, uh, sense of accomplishment, should a person have for something that they were born with, right? And I don't know the answer because you're saying it's not like you accomplished. That's it, true. It's not. On the other hand, uh, I think it's good to take pride in things that you, you know, like I take pride in being American. I I was just born here. You know, like I I, I love my family. I was just born into my family. I didn't choose them or anything. And in fact, I think it's almost like. Uh, it's this very liberal view that if I didn't choose something, it doesn't count or I, I somehow can't take pride in it. You know, I, I, I'd say these on Twitter, I'll see this sometimes, like, well, what the fuck did you do to, to get this? Why would you take pride in it? It's as stupid as taking pride in your hair color or something, it's like, yeah, but most of the things in life that are meaningful, you really didn't choose. You know, they're just, a, <laughs> you're born into the world with certain responsibilities and certain affiliations and you know, belonging to a family, to a country, and I take pride in those. So I don't know exactly how we, we deal with like saying, okay, I'm smart. Is that an accomplishment? No, but there is an accomplishment with what you do with it, I suppose. Um, should one take pride in that?
0: Yeah, I, I think you know. Uh, I think less less so about about pride. I think you know you you could you could have pride or not have pride. I think that's that's not as um, important. Maybe maybe I sound really Marxist now, but I'm just thinking you know if you have these if you have the system that says okay, the people who are going to go to the top are going to go to the top. They tend to cluster at the top, and that's just the way it is. Uh, and there are you know strata of people that are going to be in the middle and are at the bottom for for certain reasons. Um, it's, it's hard to argue to the people at the bottom why this is just, um, and maybe, maybe this is more about reframing, um, what it is to be in society. Cause I feel like, you know, now with, when you, when you have, you know, market liberalism, what this does is it tends to create, you know, winner take all dynamics in markets. It really does tend to push a lot of capital, a lot of concentration to the top. And then you have a handful of winners and, you know, a lot of, a lot of losers and a little bit of an, in the middle. Um, and that's just the, the way these markets work. And I feel like it's <clears throat> it's it's pretty tough for the people who don't get to climb the ladder, don't get to go into the, into the elevator uh, because yeah, it's just, you just really cannot like, you know, if you want to be like a Silicon Valley engineer, well, <laughs> good luck. You really- Yeah, r-
1: <laughs> no, totally agree with that. So what I think is important it, it, and like the winner take all phenomenon is an important one. And that could be a whole podcast on its own. So I'm going to set that aside and just focus on what I think is important here, which is, is we can argue about the, the or, or discuss the the sort of ethics of market capitalism. But I do think what's important is that this is why I promote nationalism. Why I think nationalism is really important and also maybe why religion is because what I think is important is to have a sense of belonging to the coalition so that if even if you are somebody who's making 35,000 a year and you're a little bit lower on the higher, the income hierarchy, let's say, you still feel as though you belong to this, this thing that's greater than you are, you know, the United States or whatever group it is that gives you, I'm a Christian, I belong to this church. And when I go to this church, people love me there. They respect me. They know that I'm a necessary person in the community. I think that's what humans really need. If you look at the, you know, the, the, the literature on what gives humans meaning in life, it's this sense of belonging to a coalition. It's the sense of having some sort of value to the coalition. So that even if you're a worker at Walmart, let's say, people still treat you as though you belong to the community and you're an important member of the community. That's what I think is really important. And I think that's the, the thing that is the most deleterious about extreme liberalism is when we get to the point where we don't have that sense of community anymore. And so, yeah, if you're, if you're a worker at Walmart and not only do people not treat you as though you're this valued member of the community and not only can you not, feel pride in being an American or feel meaning or belonging because I'm an American or whatever, but also the elites mock you, right? That's the thing that's even the worst about this is not only do you not have that, but also you get derided by elites for having the wrong moral opinions or feet for like, you're a little perplexed about transgenderism. You don't know what pronoun to use, or you're a little, you're like, I don't know. Can women actually be men or can men, you know, you They hate you. (laughs) I hate to say it that way, but a lot of them do. They treat you as though you're some kind of leper. So you're completely outcast and no longer do you have that community. So, of course, the status disparities start to matter more to you because you don't feel as though you belong to the group. I think a good comparison is like with a sports team. I don't play a lot of sports because I'm fucking terrible at them. But when I was younger, I would be on a sports team. I'd be the worst player on the team. But I still felt good if my team won because we were all doing it together and they would treat me well and I would feel like a sense of belonging to them. So even though I was the lowest on the hierarchy, I belonged to something that was more important than my own ego or my own accomplishments. And that was really important. That's what I think we need to figure out. And I don't don't know how to do that because it seems as though like, I mean, you even say nationalism or patriotism and people just mock that idea or religion, you know, people criticize that, especially elites criticize it a lot. So I think we're losing that. That's the thing that I would like to attempt to restore, figure out how to, you know, establish that kind of sense of community and belonging to something bigger.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a tough thing because, um, um, you know, on the one hand, I think one of the one of the biggest problems that, you know, the GOP style Republicans have had were was that they were trying to push 2 self-conflicting, self-conf- self-eroding ideas or this idea that, OK, you know, we need to let the private sector do as much as we can and let's let it go, let her rip. And, you know, we're going to make a lot of money. And then on the other hand, you have social conservatism. But... If if you let the private sector rip, then you know it's going to displace jobs. It's going to move them abroad. It's going to create you know a, a huge you know service sector economy for a small elite, which is essentially kind of the manufacturing is gone. So all of these places where people used to. You know, you used to go to the same kind of shop floor and do things that were, uh, you know, that would pay enough for you to be able to keep your wife at home to have a few kids and things like that. That's just absolutely impossible at the moment. There's there are no more manufacturing jobs, and there are no more manufacturing jobs for the guy who's got 90 IQ. What's what's he gonna do? Like DoorDash? Just it's how how many meals need to be delivered? <laughs> like.
1: No, I totally agree. It's a it's a. It's why I, I, my attitude toward the GOP has always sort of been um, lukewarm at, well, I mean, I was a Democrat for most of my life, but I, I, I still don't, I, trying to, you know, that was like the fusionism, right? It was like this foreign policy hawkishness, libertarianism, social conservatism those don't really work together, right? As you're pointing out, like, letting the market go, letting it just rip means you undermine a lot of social values. Like, that's what it does. The market doesn't give a shit about your community values, right? And it's actually this incredibly creative and destructive force. Like, Marx wrote a lot about this, like, how destructive and impressively, you know, productive it was, of course. But if you're a social conservative, that should be pretty terrifying to you and in fact that's precisely why a lot of social conservatives think you know what like certain goods, sex, drugs, etc shouldn't be on the market that that shouldn't be a, a part of the free market um, so yes, you're right it's it's it was a confusing mixture. I think it was held together largely by fear and disgust of communism, right? Because all of those groups could agree, we don't like communism. So the hawks were like, we don't like communism. The social conservatives were like, we don't like godless communism. Of course, market people were like, we like markets, we don't like communism. Uh, Because even like take the foreign policy hawkishness, that's actually the antithesis of conservatism, right? Which is conservatism's this recognition that society is this incredibly complex phenomenon that has its own organic history. And hawkish conservatism was like, oh, well, we'll just go into Iraq and transplant our institutions. No, you can't break an egg and put it back together, right? (laughs) That's sort of what social conservatism would tell you is that you can't treat this complicated jigsaw puzzle as something you can just blast apart and reconstruct. Um, So I never understood the hawkish part of it either. I mean, you know, opposing communism is one thing, but voluntarily going on an adventure to overthrow a government, as happened in Iraq or something, that's totally another thing. Um, So there isn't a coherent vision of conservatism, I don't think, at least in the United States, because you always had this weird opportunistic fusion of these groups. And I don't know what we're gonna get because another problem is Trump has such an outsized influence and he's such a unique personality. And in my mind, a malignant personality, even though I share some of the policy instincts he has, I don't like his personality and I don't like the way that this sort of cult has grown up around him as we just see with Liz Cheney. I don't like Liz Cheney. I don't like some of her views, but she's right. The election wasn't stolen and and she's right to say that. And the fact is she's voted with Trump, I think, 92% of the time. The reason she's getting booted or got booted is because of this fidelity to Trump. And now that's like this corrosive uh, force in the GOP, which is really unfortunate because some of the views that these people are are making are, you know are, are becoming more popular the the sort of armani's and the john gray's i suppose and, and these views that are interesting josh hawley even i i think that they're getting overshadowed by just the 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 personality of trump instead it's not about the ideas as much it's just about this person's personality and do you agree with what he says and and that's unfortunate
0: yeah i think the the personality of trump was kind of a a necessary pattern interrupter at, at one point he was kind of like the the shelling point for people who were who were pissed off and mm-hmm. wanted to change. he was you know he was also like if if you if you put like sora amari and I love him dearly i i'm currently reading his book um into the the trump role i don't think he would have been the, that type of lightning rod because he speaks to a different audience. Mm-hmm. So in a way, you know, Trump was kind of like a flare in the night, you know, trying to say, okay, this is this is a new this is a, a new direction because it was in, it was a new direction for the GOP. It wasn't yes. the same libertarianism. It was you know it was protectionist. It was all sorts of stuff that you know the the Cato Institute trembles at, and you know it wasn't it wasn't your your usual stuff. So I think for just from a narrative and kind of just, just like game theoretic perspective, I think he was a great a great turning point for, uh, for politics. What's oh, coming? I,
1: I, yeah, no, I, to be clear, I totally agree with that. So I think if you were to write the history of the United States and say 2035, Trump will be much more important than Obama or or GW. Well, GW Bush might be important as the single worst president in the United States, <laughs> but Trump will be. I agree with you. He he was definitely a lightning rod, a a, a, a an agent of change, chaos and change. It's just, I just think if you could have had a figure. Who was willing to flip the media off and to say no the way that he was, but who was also much more, uh, much less boorish and outre and able better to articulate some of these ideas? I think that would have been a lot healthier. And I think a figure who is giving me hope is DeSantis. So if you look at DeSantis, he's got this, he's charismatic he's got this sort of belligerence that, that is appealing to these people who feel as though they've been spat upon for so long and they're angry and they want somebody to fight. But DeSantis is much better able to express these ideas and he's a little less fickle and whimsical. Like, the problem with Trump is, he basically outsourced economic policy to Paul Ryan. So even though rhetorically he was against libertarianism, you know, and he he would say things about how we're going to make the greatest healthcare in the world, and you know, at times it sounded even more progressive than a progressive. He ultimately just ended up <laughs> giving Paul Ryan his wish list of tax cuts, right? And I'm I'm not sure. Now he did want, you know, I do think it's. I think it's important that he did push the party away from fiscal conservatism, for example. I do think he did that. But if you actually look at the policies that passed until the pandemic, they were basically like everything you could hope for if you were a Koch, right? If you were Charles Coke or something. Not, I don't agree with them. They're perfectly decent people, but I, I don't want the policies that they want. So that's my problem. My criticism of Trump is is, yes, but I do agree with you certainly an agent of change. His personality was unique and it was probably, I think you could argue is kind of necessary, but I want the party to move on from him at this point, especially the shit about winning the election. Like it's just at this point, it's totally unnecessary. It's, It's just silly in my view. It's not helping the party at all. It's pushing people away from each other. And I would like to see the Sorheb Amari ideas and other people's ideas. I'd like to see people talking about that more. And what can we do about social media? And, you know, Josh Hawley has some interesting ideas that I would like. I would like people to be debating those instead of Trump's, you know, what Trump said or whatever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think in a way, I I, I appreciate the phenomenon of Trump just for him he was kind of like the the, the the landmine detonator thingy. I don't know who described this, but it was like this little tool that they, they send off on the, the landmines and it just detonates everything in our path and then Right. It, ha- it has opened up a lot of a lot of interesting conversations.
1: For oh for sure, for sure. And like the the issue I care the most about, immigration. Without him, it'd be a totally different like world of discourse. Like clearly, he opened up that area and showed that there were a lot of Americans who cared a lot about immigration. And now you see DeSantis, for example, in one of his interviews, he said like basically the first thing he would do is crack out on the border, e verify. So like he and and Biden actually the thing that he's underwater on is immigration. So like I care a lot about that. And Trump was good at uh, speaking to our concerns, although he didn't do everything I, I would have liked, he did open up that world of discourse. So I, I definitely agree about that. Um, the question is, is it worth the trade-off for the clearly malignant personality? <laughs> and maybe you're a little more sympathetic than I am. I mean, I'm, I'm open to it. I know that this is,
0: I think. Know, I'd rather have an open Machiavellian than all the closeted ones that we always have because this, this profession doesn't really speak to someone who's not a narcissist. The narcissists we had before were just a bit more refined and they knew how to present themselves. They were, they were baked in more of fancy ovens.
1: Oh, for sure. There, there's some truth to that. I, I suppose what I would say, though, is that even even people who worked in the, uh, the Trump administration or who were closer to it, who wanted certain issues and really cared about them. Like if you look into immigration, they would say Trump didn't know what the fuck he was doing. He would sell them out. He basically just agreed with whatever the person he talked to said. And that's more of my concern with him. It was like, <laughs> what you'd want is somebody who was more ideologically consistent and who had like a clear idea, like, okay, it's not just I'm going to say like they're sending us some bad people. I have this idea about what we can do to accomplish successful immigration reform. Now, again, they did accomplish something. So remain in Mexico, they did solve the crisis at the border before Biden got in and totally blew that up. So, you know, I I do appreciate that. And like, whatever, maybe you and I just weigh Trump a little bit differently. That's fine. You know, like, I I'm, I'm open to those discussions. I don't I, I, I regret voicing support for Biden. I, I underestimate. Now, to be clear, I didn't vote. People always say, why did you vote? I did not vote for him. I didn't vote. I couldn't make myself vote because I didn't like either option. If I had it to do over, I would vote for Trump. It would be painful, but I would do it, and I underestimated the damage that Biden could cause, and that's my bad. I, I'll admit that I was wrong on that. I will never, at least in the current era, vote for a Democrat again. <laughs> and it's, you know, like literally at this point, you could you could run a squirrel, like a literal squirrel, against the Democrat, and I'd vote for the squirrel as the lesser of two evils. <laughs>
0: Yeah. yeah, I can imagine. I also did not vote for either Biden or Trump, but that's just because I'm I'm here in in the backwater. I I can't. But um, yeah, I, I I completely I completely see what you mean. Um, you know, the lesser of two evils style of, of of voting is you know it's 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 a cliche for a reason. You know, it's uh, yes. yeah. you kind of have to have to yeah suck it up sometimes
1: you do oh. and and i made i i just i i made a miscalculation i i real to be fair well maybe this isn't fa- i should i should be hard on myself i fucked up i can admit it um, i think i thought biden would be more moderate than he has been and that was an error i made an error there i mean now I didn't think it was going to be great. I mean, I knew it would be a problem and I knew we would still have to fight against a lot of this stuff, but I didn't think it would be this bad. I actually thought it would sort of calm down wokeism and then we would actually be more successful at combating it. But that actually has not been the case. So,
0: Yeah, it's it's, it's hard to say what actually happened because in a way it's... It hasn't really calmed down wokeism. It's kind of turned it into like a a fever pitch. Like it's really pushed it to to some some crazy heights. Yeah, I, I think in a way, I mean, it's 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 self-consuming at the moment. You know, I feel like the red pill moments keep piling on for a lot of people, and yeah. I sure hope so.
1: <laughs> I thought that's that's the thing is I always think that I'm always like, wow, like you know, this is just gonna dispense one red pill after another. I think the problem is you and I, and I, I mean, I'm just, I'll speak for myself, I suppose. I see people on Twitter or something. And I'm like, Oh man, like that person's getting fucking red pilled. Wow. You know, maybe this is, but the fact, the problem is these are like a few people on Twitter. They're not like students at Yale or Harvard or something. So like, I, I think, you know, you can see some dissension and some conflict within even the progressive left. You know, you can see Matthew Iglesias, just to take an example, sort of being like, "Eh, come on, guys, we're going a little far here. This is a little crazy. Some of this shit is really noxious. But I don't, I don't know that that's representative of most people on the progressive left. I, I think they're just getting worse. And the problem with having a Democrat is you can see all of the power that you get from having, you know, from controlling the administration because you can put people into all of these positions. And it just turns out your rhetoric matter, matters. Like, so, for example, Biden's rhetoric on immigration is is almost certainly what has caused the, the disaster at the border for the past two months. Right. It's because people saw it as a signal. They're not going to enforce the they're, they're not going to enforce immigration laws. Period. And people thought, okay, we're going to cross the border. So all of those things matter. I mean, I hope you're right. I hope people are taking red pills and they're like, holy shit, man, cool, or whatever. But I, I'm skeptical. I've had hope, and then they've been dashed, and then hope, and then it was dashed. And at this point, I'm just pretty pessimistic.
0: Yeah, you've you've been in this rodeo much 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 longer than I have, so I can, you know, I've just have uh, I've just just showed up and I'm like, oh my God, look at all. The it I
1: have a lot of guy.
0: bullet holes from this <laughs> war. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can understand why you're, you're so weathered and cynical, but you'll see.
1: <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I hope you're right.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, what I see is that they're like strange coalitions forming between, you know, people kind of breaking off from the left people. And the, the, the hopeful thing about this is that when you have these these people who have been in previously part of echo chambers, they're still part of those communities and they still communicate to factions within those communities. So if they if they switch or if they become a bit more nuanced or if they bring in all sorts of ideas, like I, I would never have thought that people who were like staunch conservative right-wingers would turn to like Marxist class analysis, you know, uh, to, <laughs> to <laughs> yes, discuss yeah. things and it's, it's becoming quite mainstream and you have all these like post-something movements, you got the post-left, post-liberalism, post-that, uh, and what this essentially means is that people from all sorts of factions are coming together and trying to solve problems or you know yell at each other, but you know in a productive way. Um, and I think that's that's hopeful because these people are still connected to those communities. And you could also see it in the in the very bit like the vitriol these people are getting because you know they're trying to to clean their um, their, their their factions, uh, and if someone says something wrong, but you know it's you can do that up to a point, but they they still they're still pretty effective like. You no, know, a good example is amy therese she's uh you know host of host of what's left and she's very she's a firebrand and uh you know they keep trying to oust her off of twitter she comes back you know full force and she she keeps going and yeah i think it's it's, it's quite heartening that you know they can't they can't make you stop if if, uh, if you don't want to
1: yeah, you no, know, you're, I mean, you are right that there is, there is kind of a, a, what would you say, like an efflorescence of heterodox views, and you're right, like some, I've I've often said this to conservatives, especially like social conservatives, uh, read Marx himself, right, like the real, now, I, obviously, I don't agree with everything Marx wrote, I, I don't think anybody should, but Marx was a brilliant person and he's worth reading. Um, and, and there are insights there, (laughs) you know, it's, uh, it's what happened to him, which is what happens to a lot of these thinkers, you know, what happens to them. I mean, for example, Nietzsche was appropriated for the Nazis, you know, mostly perhaps by his sister and then other people, but that happens. Um, so, but you're right. There are, conservatives who are looking to you know interesting thinkers and they're criticizing you know this sort of market libertarianism which i love because i consider libertarianism like my bait noir it's like the the ideology i most hate but i like the people because they will debate me and that's fun but i just i find libertarianism utterly perplexing you know just as an ideology and i i would be happy to kick it out of the uh the sort of well, let's say this, I don't want to kick it out because I think, I think they make some good arguments and you sort of need this mixture of different views. I would like that to be a, a, a smaller part of the Republican Party moving forward. But on the issues that I care a lot about, now, you do get immigrations, one where you do have a lot of pushback now. But, you know, like talking about human variation, I don't see that going anywhere anytime soon. You know, it's <laughs> like a lot of these taboo topics that I thought it would get better and we would be able to have these discussions more. It's actually, it's, it's become much worse. So like I started writing about that in say 2013 or something, it's much worse than it was. And it's getting even worse. And these science journals are all coming out with, statements about, you know, we're gonna have diversity, we'll have diverse reviewers. I even saw this article that literally counted up the diversity of the sources that it cited. So they went through all of their citations and they marked the sex and the race of the people they cited and said, we cited, you know, 23% African-Americans, 42% women, I, I mean, this kind of identity-obsessed craziness is—it's actually getting worse. So that—that's where I'm more, de- you know, sort of depressed.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. As I said, I'm—I'm I'm new to this game. I could only offer platitudes like, you know, it's gonna get worse before it gets better. <laughs> so I don't know. It's uh,
1: darkest before the dawn. <laughs>
0: exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's. um it It is a bit a bit scary uh if if you think about it because you know um kind of one of the assumptions that we have here under under western liberalism you know and enlightenment rationalism is that in the marketplace of ideas there is the truth will truth will wiggle itself into 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 the limelight, and as you see with c r t and with with all of these you know with with the whole m- momentum that is wokeness. Doesn't really happen like that. I mean, I'm, I'm curious. What's what's your what's your feeling today about the marketplace of ideas? You know, hot, not yeah. overrated, underrated.
1: <laughs> I, no, it's really so. Let me address something that you said we were talking about earlier. That's somewhat related. That I think is a really important point, which is it's not neutral. But like liberal, the the idea that liberalism is neutral, it's complete hogwash, right? And it, it was never neutral. And I actually, I think that's an important insight that people have had and that they've been talking about this. And you see this in the debate between Amari and David French, right? Because French is like, you know, we have this neutral marketplace and Amari's like, it's it's not neutral. It's never been neutral. And I, I think what that means is we're becoming aware of these background assumptions because when we say it's neutral, I think what people mean is it's neutral so long as everybody already has the shared background assumptions. When you don't have those shared background assumptions anymore, you realize, oh yeah, those aren't neutral, right? And that's something I think that probably goes for the marketplace of ideas in, just in general is that it works when you're it more or less works. It doesn't work in the short run. I think in the long run, you know, if you look at like sort of Enlightenment rationality and, and scientific thinking they They have a remarkable string of successes with the appropriate shared background assumptions, and importantly, one of those background assumptions, one of the norms that you have to have is evidence is what purely evidence that's what matters here and with c r t or something it's not based on evidence, and in fact, these people do everything they can to suppress evidence you know take it from me i've been talking about human variation for seven, eight years now, it, you can't, it's hard to publish any articles, no matter how circumspect you are, no matter how rigorous your arguments are, you can't talk about it publicly. You get attacked and uh, you know people calumniate you instead of actually addressing the argument. So it's just about power. It's about moral bullying. And that's what's happening. And to me, that's 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 what's taking, that's what's causing the distortion in the marketplace of ideas. Now, also, I do think, look, like humans aren't rational. They're just not. They're very flawed, irrational, emotional creatures. They're not designed to arrive at the truth about these abstract problems. And so the marketplace of ideas was always an idealization. But I would say, That idealization within the context of, say, 1750 to 1950 worked really well. And in fact, it's still, I think it's important to recognize it still is in some areas, right? So if you look at genetics, minus the race stuff, right? Because the geneticists fucking lie about this. They they call it human populations or ancestry. They do everything to lie about it. But the actual, like, on-the-ground technological might of researchers and, and the knowledge that we have is much greater than it was even 20 years ago. It's amazing. Like if, if you get a genetics book from 2015, it's already out of date, right? It's like, you need to stay up to date because we're actually making impressive progress. So in that sense, that's cool. I'm optimistic about that part. The, the, the bad part is on these sacred topics, marketplace doesn't work because people don't let it work so race transgenderism uh, sex differences to some degree maybe with debates about religion like you know i don't this isn't so much of an issue anymore but i remember it used to be with like people would be called islamophobes if you were concerned about islamic fundamentalism or islamic terrorism so anytime like moral concerns outweigh empirical concerns the marketplace grinds down the machinery you know it becomes corroded
0: yeah i i completely agree and I, i think um what i typically object to when people talk about the marketplace of ideas is that there is this you know kind of historicism to it like okay you know we just put the ideas out there fighting it out and then one of them will win because that one is true I think that happens in empirical fields when you know you're trying to get to a result and you're trying maybe to to monetize that or to to prove it against other other results that were previously gotten. Maybe there's some intra-collegial conflict, so there are incentives that point towards getting to the truth. But when it comes to ethics and when it comes to you know evolution of of co- cooperation and how to how to structure society, that falls away there's the incentives are completely different they're they're not like oh what is true it's they're about it's about like who wins and who's in power and how can i get mine and you know so i think you know this kind of almost like millenarian vibe that yeah the truth will will win out you know, the fact that it worked in science really does not mean that it works everywhere else.
1: It really does. Oh, totally agree. I I think actually we should appreciate the sort of uniqueness of science and the fact that it does work in science is what makes science unique. I'm not even sure if it makes sense to think that there's sort of an ethical truth. I mean, I think there are Certain things all humans would more or less agree on, and certain things that are objectively true, such as if two people cooperate, they're both better off than if they try to kill each other or something, right? That's, I guess, like an ethical principle in some sense. I don't know, like, you know, it's really hard to say oh, well, wanting a homogenous society is objectively worse than wanting a diverse one or vice versa. Like, I don't even know what it what truth is at that point. And so, yeah, I think a lot of ethical conflicts and political conflicts, it just boils down to power. Now, I think in social policy, so long as we basically agree that like, hey, take take a concrete example, say like, what should our policy about swimming pools be? Well, we don't want kids to drown. So, we can actually look and do research and say, "Hey, if you if you mandate fences on swimming pools, just 250 lives a year." That's a concrete fact. You can actually solve that problem. But then, here's the value, is it worth forcing everyone to put a fence up, right? Then I don't know what's true there, right? Th- that's where you just turn into a power debate and I think something we can point to right now that's germane is COVID policy, right? So even if we had all of the facts, which we don't, of course, but even if we knew everything there was to know about this, there just there's this value debate that's hard to get past. And that's why, and I, I, I suspect you feel this way, that's why I, I, I do, certainly. I hate the whole progressive hashtag believe science. We believe science. Science doesn't answer the question. Let's just suppose that masks work 1%. They decrease transmission 1%. Science doesn't tell you if it's worth mandating them, right? That's not an answer science provides. So this whole "believe science shit, no, that's, <laughs> that's not the issue here. The issue is we have a conflict over values, right? And I think we should just be honest about that and have that discussion
0: yeah it, it is it is hard to um to get conformity if you don't appeal to moral uh, moral foundations you know and essentially this whole belief science thing is their way to kind of their their only lever at the moment because we we do live in this you know enlightenment rational you know pro science type of world where people believe the science uh to, to to kind of push you in the direction of uh yeah of, of you know conformism without asking too many questions
1: yeah you're right so so it's sort of parlaying the uh what would you say the the pro-science attitude that people reflexively have it's using that and saying well if you actually believed the science this is what you would do and you're right that's so now it sounds as though maybe our difference is that i'm a little I'm a little more positive about the Enlightenment vision and in, in pro-science. I mean, I do recognize the limitations, but I, I think what's the all, I mean, you're right that you have to have these shared values. And I think those aren't really rational, right? It's like, yeah,
0: I think, just I think kind um, of, the, the problem that we have is that, you know, because we, because there are no other moral foundations there there is nothing outside of this, and you know even though I completely respect the enlightenment, the fruits of the enlightenment you know i I love my microwave, you know we're talking through enlightenment technology right now it's it's all good um but because this is the only accessible magic that people have, you know these are miracles that manifest themselves every day. This is essentially kind of the 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 last you know realm of of power that we have that to tell people okay, you know the people who represent. The, the Zoom calls and the microwave and the medicine and the low child mortality and all of this stuff, these high priests, they're telling you <laughs> to stay home, put on the mask, get the vaccine, do all of that. So I understand. I mean, it's a, it's a heuristic and they're using it to, to full effect, but I, I don't participate in your cult. I, I'm not of, of the Church of Enlightenment. You know, I respect <laughs> it as a tool, but I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, play okay. along.
1: I I think that's a profound point. I really do. You're right. I mean, basically, because we've we've sort of moved to this point that, like, reason is supposed to be the god, if you will, and, like, these these wizards of society, we we use this heuristic, we tap into it, and we say, well, Bill Gates wants you to wear, I mean, Bill Gates is the reason you have Microsoft, motherfucker. If he tells you to put a mask on, you should do it, because the fact of the matter is, I think this is an important point that that's sort of implicit in that is people aren't rational. So really what you're doing is you're doing this irrational appeal to authority that's based on science that pretends to be purely rational, but it's not purely rational. It's an appeal to authority. It's Bill Gates or Tim Cook or whatever, one of these grand, great wizards, you know. <laughs> um, but, okay, so... <laughs> I, I do agree with all of that. I, I think I think the important thing to recognize is that enlightenment, sort of like enlightenment liberal West, the enlightenment liberal West worked well until some of those background values fell apart and until diversity started increasing a lot, right? I, I mean, I think that's the bigger problem. And I, I think people are afraid to talk about that. And people like Amari don't talk about it. People like Deneen Demi- don't talk about it. But in my view, the causal, you know, if you look at the ideology of this, it is di- increasing diversity and the decline of these shared background assumptions that you needed for this, this discourse of rationality to work. Because if you had these shared, and liberalism, right? this order, and you're right, the, the, the sort of background moral assumptions were not a part of rationalism. They're just sort of there. They're the given, if you will. And when you have those, it works really well. I think when those start to fall apart and different groups don't buy into them anymore, then you're right. Then you move to this more pernicious science is a god. We're going to appeal to all of these people and wear your mask and trust the science stuff, right? And that, that's a problem.
0: And I feel like, you know, like you said, you know, diversity also pushes the type of moral foundations that you can have, you know, because like, like you said, there's no society that doesn't have any moral foundations, you know, that's just in the nature of, of how people congregate. But if yes. you have a diverse society, like what's, what's who's your God? Tolerance is your god.
1: You yeah, yeah, e- equality
0: right. is your god. You know, personal right. autonomy because yes. we are not hanging together anymore. You know, you are right. autonomous, um, and then you also have you know the growth of the state as well for all these you know mm-hmm. atomized diverse individuals don't even speak the same language. Like to right. to, ma- to manage the Tower of Babel, that's kind of your set of assumptions. You can't really have other values except for these.
1: No, right, and that's a good point because what you're what you're what you're pointing to there is that these on the ground uh uh, changes lead to profound cultural changes and the changes in the values that you have to espouse as a society and yeah the growth of the government because i i that's another thing that i think is important is is these small market liberals or libertarians tend to be very open friendly to open borders and i'm like you're undermining your own desires because when you increase diversity, you create all of these um, incentives for bigger government. And you actually like, like small government works or did work well, again, in a relatively homogenous society with shared values where people would Uh, take care of each other with charity and you knew each other and you were in the community and you felt as though you were in the same boat if you will that kind of shit breaks apart when you increase diversity and then you get like the government has to come and fill the 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 demand for that right or or, i mean it's the supply to this demand that you have now it's just it is weird to me that's that's another thing about libertarianism I want to, you know, debate some of these people because they tend to be very open borders. And I'm just, I'm like, you, don't you see, like, is it, is it an accident that the five most libertarian-friendly countries were all Anglo countries? I mean, ask yourself that. You have five of them, New Zealand, Australia, Britain, Canada, the United States. And you can argue about Canada, whatever. It's a little different. They're all a little different, but if you look at, Things libertarians would say they desire; those countries get as close as any countries in history. They're all Anglo, okay. That, I don't think that's an accident. Now, you, you, we can argue about the causes. I have a simple hypothesis. I'm welcome. I welcome people to debate me about it. But at least let's recognize that and have a conversation about it, right? And that's again, that's one of these things that you can't even talk about, which is incredibly unfortunate
0: yeah yeah absolutely and you know it also kind of puts the whole idea of the end of history under a, a big you know uh yeah under under question like the idea that you know like you were saying before like right. why, why is America so hawkish because it, it believes in its moral assumptions it's like it's almost like a crusade you know going going abroad spreading liberalism you're not spreading Christianity by the sword but you're spreading you know your your equality you know your your girl girls going to school and I don't know transgender rights in Afghanistan and stuff like that right just doesn't, well, doesn't' work like that
1: well also that's notice that that's premised on this view that all humans are the same and that liberalism is sort of the peak of all human all possible civilization for all humans this is why i think and i know this shit gets people in trouble but it's why i think recognizing the reality of human diversity is so important because you then don't make these these in my view erroneous assumptions that hey you know what like all people are tuned are they're sort of fine-tuned to love liberty and that's like the the sort of what would you say the default state of humanity so like for i i read this fascinating book i wish i could remember the author right now but i can't but it was on um the lead up to the iraq war uh, the sort of decision making and all of the fucking lying and all of the ideas and the people behind it, it was very fascinating. And, and one thing that I got from it was it, it was premised on this just completely mistaken view about humans that liberal societies were the default state of all humans. And what you, all you had to do was get rid of the impediments to liberalism in Iraq and boom. It would, it would be like this flower that would come up and blossom, right? And the fact of the matter is, no, it's really hard to get a liberal society. It's happened in a very few places on the planet. And it's not even clear that it's sort of the best system for a lot of different humans. Anyway, that, that's, like, that's my most cancel worthy opinion about the world (laughs)
0: yeah yeah well you know people i I share this opinion so uh, we're going now together
1: (laughs) okay right okay good well (laughs) but it it, to me it's look we could be wrong right i'm sure you accept you could be wrong i could be wrong of course of course let's debate it let's debate it and let's also accept that there's a huge price to pay if the people who think all humans are the same are wrong because you're trying to instantiate these norms and cultural systems in groups of people who are not the same and that what's the track record of that well it's really really bad isn't it i mean look at the the cost of the iraq war when when i When I read about the cost of the Iraq war in terms of human bodies and money, it makes me want to cry. You know, I mean, it's just devastating. And what's weird to me is I'm the danger, according to these people. I'm the person who needs to get fired because I have these heretical views about human variation these people killed hundreds of thousands of people based on this stupid idea of human sameness and like well like
0: libya now has open-air slave markets so yeah put that one on the list too yeah yeah, and and, and so many other places that have you know been improved by by spreading democracy yeah well it's a travesty
1: right and here's another thing that's interesting right is that Trump is viewed with absolute disdain by people on the left. But G.W. Bush is almost like, oh, he's so nice and decent. Yeah, and, he's back. <laughs> he's back. He's writing this e pluribus, you know, this uh, out of many, one. Look at all these immigrant stories. And and people on the left are like, oh, this is what a decent man is. This person caused way more suffering, way more suffering than trump did way more and and i happen to think that a concrete action such as the iraq fiasco is much worse than having boorish rhetoric or even what happened on january 6 right like the iraq war is much worse than that
0: yeah yeah absolutely um before before I let you go, because now we've, we've gone past a, a little bit I, I can
1: go as long as you want i really don't care oh,
0: okay okay <laughs> no because i I have uh the question of the show, which is an important question, and I have to ask it to, to to everyone um do you have a um a subversive thinker someone who's been you know influential on your thinking on 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 your um on your work or any sort of any sort of influence that you think a
1: subversive thinker i like subversive this. thinker yeah okay.
0: so either you know could be a writer would be a musician whatever whatever is is interesting to you uh, that people should check out you know i'm trying to i'm trying to uncover stuff that you know little gems that people are are hiding
1: i like that um let me contemplate that for a moment so that i give you great examples i have two now, one I will have to qualify, because he one is J. Philip Rushkin. Now, people who know him will suck in their breath. <laughs> Rushkin. Now, let me say, there are problems with Rushkin, and there's actually a Dutton wrote a biography of Rushkin that was fun to read that did document some of the problems, and he played fast and loose with some data. And he may have even been mendacious about some things. That said, he had some very interesting theories about human variation that a lot of researchers have found profitable, specifically about variation in life history theory, that people, professors, figurettos, one at um, Arizona or New Mexico, um, I think Arizona, and Many other researchers have found uh, these very fruitful ideas. So even though he has some problems, and I readily accept those, he's very worth reading. And, you know, again, like debate these people, right? So one would be rushed in. The other would be, I, I feel, less... Uh, what's the word like? Wet, less dirty for recommending this thinker, who would be Arthur Jensen, who was a educational psychologist, psychometrician, probably most famous for um, writing a Harvard Educational Review article in the '60s and for his book The G Factor. Just one of the most scrupulously honest intellectuals, completely transparent about his views, and in fact he said something that's been an inspiration to me. He said he wanted his well-considered private intellectual views to be public. He did not want to have, again, like not every thought needs to be public. Like I hate Madonna, she's ugly or whatever. Like you don't need to make that public, but well-considered intellectual views. Like, yes, I just think it's true that there's a genetic component to the racial IQ gap or something, you should have the integrity as an intellectual to be open and honest about that that's what he said his goal was and his hero was actually mahatma gandhi i got this from him i don't know 10 years ago or whenever i read his interviews and that that has been sort of like my lodestar i don't always live up to it certainly but that that's been an inspiration to me and i i again i would just people who have heard these names and think oh, these are terrible people or whatever, read them. If you still think that, argue with them, debate their arguments, and they're both very good at forwarding lots of arguments and grappling with the da- data, argue, right? That's what we should do, teach people <laughs> to argue. And in fact, one profits more often from reading people with whom one disagrees, right? So. Go out and read some people with whom you disagree and then hone in your arguments, right? And I should say, um, I guess I'm taking time here, but right. what i
0: Okay, so this
1: is what this is what I would say about like let's just take that topic, race and IQ. I'm not gonna talk about it much, but what I would say is I went into that topic a long time ago thinking it can't be true that genes play any role. And I spent a lot of time reading people who argued that it wasn't true and who were arguing against it. That's actually how I started thinking it was the most plausible explanation. It's precisely because I thought the arguments against it were so weak after reading voluminous literature on it. And then I was reading Rushton and Jensen as somebody who was arguing against them, right? That's how I got into that. I was like, I don't... I don't agree with these people. I'm going to read them and and argue against them. And at some point, they changed my mind. And that's a wonderful, disorienting feeling. You know, it's on the one hand, it's exciting because you're like, wow, like I see a a new thing about the world. This is really interesting. On the other hand, of course, it's like, oh, shit, I, I don't have these views anymore. And in this case, I had the wrong views. So that was kind of scary, but that's what we should all strive to do if we're open and honest thinkers, you know, read the people with whom you disagree and try to argue against them. That's all we can ask for.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I I know this feeling because I one of my majors in college was the diversity management, so <clears throat> I used to be quite really? yeah quite <laughs> okay. involved in the in the diversity grift. Uh, I was tra- trained to be an HR manager somewhere. Really? Yeah. So yeah, I've, I've had change change of heart. Uh, uh, but yeah, shortly after college, I remember someone was just a a woman I, I liked because I was kind of really into new atheism at that point. Um, okay. Yeah, she sent me some something. I think it was from Karen Strawn, um, you know, like the the honey badger lady. Anyway, it was like a very, very good takedown of, of, I don't know, some aspect of feminism. And I was, I I had like, I was, I sat with like cognitive, like serious cognitive dissonance for about a month. And then I was like, yeah, I need to, I need to sort this out.
1: (laughs) That's so fascinating because this has happened to me. This is like, this has happened to me twice one was on the genetically caused group differences especially in iq and the other was god when i became an atheist and i actually i remember i had this feeling you described i had this i was sitting there with a book and i was just like oh no like i know the truth but i didn't want to accept it now you can disagree with me personally i'm an atheist That's, but i i was like okay i'm an atheist like i can't but it took me like two months fully to like absorb that and i I mean i remember going to college the next day and and feeling like an alien in my world like that's what it felt like i was just like what is this world i inhabit now you know totally disorienting and and bizarre but also exciting and that's the kind of experience you need if you're going to be an intellectual like knowledge you know, the Garden of Eden, like the, the idea there, right, is knowledge is painful, right? It's not you're not always gonna be like, oh great, this is awesome. This just confirms everything I know about the world. Let me ask you a question. Are you it looks dark? Are you in Europe?
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm in Romania. That's that's where I'm
1: R- from. Romania. Where, yeah. <laughs> oh shit. Wow. Do you know the history of Ceausescu? Or I don't know. Is that how you? Yeah,
0: yeah, Ce- Yeah.
1: Okay, I can't even do that. Okay, That's very fascinating. Sometimes we can, <laughs> we won't bore people about that on here, but. No, okay, of course, yeah.
0: of course, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm Romanian. I'm I've I've grown up here. I've I've lived in in kind of mainland Europe and then in, in the UK okay. for a while. But yeah, now I'm very back.
1: Okay, very interesting. So you do do you have the same taboos about like group differences there or that not so much?
0: Not that many groups here. <laughs> right. So, <okay. laughs> we're I, mean,
1: we're quite, I mean,
0: to be honest, we, we have we have differences. There's some ethnic tensions, but okay. um it's 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 not like, you know, you have these, you know, historically there were obviously we, we had, you know, quite a quite a significant Jewish community in this part of mm-hmm. Transylvania which had some part in the Holocaust and you know, that was kind of the last time we've had some, you know, serious uh, strife because of ethnic differences and you know ethnic differences and outcome as well like you know half the city was built by by wealthy you know jewish industrialists right, and right, you know I'm, I'm grateful to them because it looks great um yeah. so it's uh you know that was kind of the last time but since then you know just you know petty petty squabbles with the hungarians next door but they're too too similar to us <laughs> to count right okay
1: fair <laughs> enough Okay, well, that that's my message anyway. Is, is read people with whom you disagree and and have uh, sort of painful enjoyment while doing so.
0: Yeah, exactly. O- open your mind. <laughs> yes. G- gape it. <laughs> so, uh, right. uh, I I wanted to also ask you: Is there anything that you're you're working on that people should know about? You know, place to to point people towards. Um, that that uh, you know they can do to support you or to to read yes. your stuff. Yes.
1: Thank you. I am, as I said, v- way back at the start of this, dependent upon people. And I thank all of the people who have kindly contributed to me. So I have a Patreon, which people can check out. And if they feel as though I deserve it, they can donate a dollar a month or whatever. And I am working on two books, but I'm really focusing on one now. So I really want to write the the, I guess what I would call my magnum opus on human variation so that that's like what takes up my time now just reading a lot about um, you know the history of different ethnic groups their countries whatever and reading about um, population genetics etc so it's a lot of reading you know 10 hours a day reading and I hope to turn this into like I don't know a 250 300 page book that I, I hope is like reader friendly, sort of, is, is my goal is to make one on human variation that's both in depth, but pretty reader friendly. So that's that's my main focus right now.
0: Yeah, excellent, excellent. I mean, I, I, I can't uh, can't wait until it's it's ready and uh, prepared to so. read okay. soon. Well, thank you so much, Beau. It, was, it was lovely to speak to you. Thank you. If you like what you're hearing, wanna see where I take it, And maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you.